Morning, my friends. It's at this point in the service where we can look to the scriptures together. I prepared some thoughts and challenges that I hope you all find compelling and uplifting. As a community, we've been uh, studying a book of the Bible, self-titled, called Luke. It's three-quarters of the way through the Bible, if you're not familiar with it. If you don't have a Bible, John Vanderklok has them. And he'd be willing to share if you just raise your hand for one. Um, this is one of four books of the Bible that chronicle the life and the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. And so um, if you would turn there and find chapter 22, this is where we are. you're feeling crowded there's something that i was thinking about yesterday is, is if i um if you wanted to you could bring your own chair i don't know why i was thinking about that but i thought summer's coming up and i was thinking of the uh the old baseball game lawn chair and i was like what if you just throw that in the trunk and if you know that you're going to be late just grab it and you can just set it up wherever you want it's a little Dan Mike problem solving for you there before we get going. I think you have options. I think that's going to be the title of my biography. <laughs> you have options. Okay, so I've been assigned uh, 53 verses to share with you this morning. And uh, so I better quit wasting time. I uh, will just read the beginning and then read the end. Kind of like an episode of NCIS where you get that you get that snapshot of the end right at the beginning, right? Okay. So please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Luke 22 and verse 1. Now the feast of the unleavened bread, also called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he could give him money. He consists. Then they were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Now look to verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, a crowd came up, and a man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus and kissed him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, betray me, the Son of Man, with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered, enough of this. He touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the elders and the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts. You didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, the hour of darkness. This is the word of God for this morning. Please have a seat. But by no means do you have to stay seated. If you get tired, you may stand also. I know that that's what's happening at the end of the service when we sing the songs. Everybody's like, I'm ready to stand. Anyways, there are two, um, 
time references that I find really relevant uh, to understanding kind of the context of this passage. The first one is at the very beginning of the chapter when he says, the Feast of the Eleven Bread and Passover is at hand. Now this is something that we look at because we look back 20 centuries and see Jesus as the Passover lamb. And we think that that's uh, very beautiful. And it is very beautiful and significant. But what I also want you to do is remove that lens and place the lens of somebody who was at the time of Jesus, what they would have been thinking and feeling. The Passover was not connected to Jesus dying and being the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. The Passover was connected to the liberation of the people of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. It was the biggest, uh, most triumphant celebration for them. It's our 4th of July. But as I've said before, there's a difference between our 4th of July and their Passover at the time of Jesus. Namely, they did not have a free country at this time. They were being occupied by Rome. They were, they were not free from oppression, but they were still given the uh, opportunity to celebrate this. So it would be kind of like you and I um, going to Washington, D.C. on the 4th of July, painting our faces red, white, and blue, having fireworks, Tim McGraw singing the national anthem. We're all going nuts, but there's a Chinese flag flying, and we're under occupation by another country. How long is that going to last before you and I are like, what are we doing? That's a very frustrating place to be. You can't celebrate something that you know you want and, and, and not have people standing up saying, when are we going to actually do this? So there is many people at the time of Jesus extremely frustrated with the situation that they're in and are ready at any moment to step up and start fighting for their liberty again. They didn't care how many bodies they needed to, to have to do this. They, there's a strong belief at the time of Christ that God would fill in the gaps with angels. You even see that with Jesus in the garden in Matthew 27, the parallel story. He says, I could call down 12 legions of angels right now. And nobody was like, what? I mean, they, they get that. This has happened before. We've seen stuff like this happen before in, in our history. And so we're ready to do this. We're only waiting for the Messiah. What's a Messiah? It's this person who's been chosen, anointed to lead to them, to lead a rebellion, to lead the, the revolt. That's their concept of a Messiah. That's what they're thinking of. I'm not going to... The interesting part of all that, okay, is that Jesus had the expectation on him from people that he was going to be that guy. We don't play that up very much, but I mean, you could see this all through the story. I mean, remember back in chapter 13, when a guy walks up to Jesus on their way to Passover, on their way to Jerusalem, and says, Lord, are there going to be a few who are saved? I mean, he's not talking about an altar call that Jesus is going to have when they get to church in Jerusalem. He's talking about the revolution that's about to take place. Are, are many of us going to make it out of this alive? This is the meaning of, of, of their actions on Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry. All of these people chanting, not coincidentally as Jesus walked by, not coincidentally are they saying, Hosanna, save us please, as Jesus, they're saying that because he's walking by or riding on the donkey, and they're saying, you're our guy. Please pick up the sword. Let's go. This is 
uh, the, the, the pregnancy of the time that this expectation is laid on Jesus. I'm not going to talk much more about the Passover. And for the reason that is we're going to have our own Passover feast uh, in three weeks. So if you're interested and you want to have sort of a holistic experience of that, it's not going to be hokey. Um, and we're not going to just talk about how to have a feast. We're going to have a feast. And so if you guys want to have a celebration uh, here in a couple of weeks, you should sign up. For, you got to sign up. You got to sign up for that. How you sign up is the next question. Go to the website and look for the icon of a man carrying a water jar and click on that. That'll take you to another website that uh, has a password, which is uh, the Lord wants us to know where we will eat Passover. Is that a little too much? I'm sorry. Okay, that's not it. I'm just, that, that would be a really cool idea. I bet you we could do that, Allison. I bet we could make the website do that. You got to ask yourself, why did why did Jesus give that kind of a cryptic uh, way of, of, of finding the Passover, um, uh, the place for their dinner? Well, this leads me to the next time reference that is very important for our context, and it's the opposite almost. Jesus says at the very end of this passage, your hour has come, the hour of darkness. So Jesus knows that he has got a one-way ticket to Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to suffer. He knows that he's going to die. And, uh, and this is in opposition to the expectation that he has to bring liberty and freedom physically. He knows that he's going to Jerusalem to bring liberty and freedom spiritually. He knows that there's a conspiracy happening, and that's probably why I think he's so cryptic when it comes to where he's going to eat dinner. He's not going to sacrifice dinner. It would be a perfect opportunity for Judas to bring people into this private dinner somewhere in the upper room. And so he conceals the location of that because he is eagerly desired to eat this feast with them. It's important to know that he knows he's going to suffer because that makes us pay attention to what he says all the more. I mean, when your dad takes you to a baseball game, maybe you're going to listen to him when he says something. But if he's on his deathbed, you're going to lean in. Jesus knows that this is the moment he has with them before a very difficult time. The hour of darkness is at hand. And just as a disclaimer, I just want you to know we're dealing with some very heavy issues. Uh, abandonment and betrayal are the main themes and suffering of this night of Jesus's life. And so as you engage with that, hopefully my persona is mirroring the, the, the weightiness of that. But if I use an example or something that hits you, I'm not trying to be flippant. Jesus gets abandoned. And we live in a period of darkness as well and need to hear what he has to say to his followers who are, who are about to walk into a very uh, difficult time of trial. We need to pay attention to what he's saying so that we can survive our dark nights of the soul, our difficult hardships, our time of trial as well. So Jesus has a dinner with the disciples. And at the very end of dinner, he drops a bomb on them. I don't know how this came up, but all of a sudden Jesus says, one of you are going to betray me. (laughs) 
Maybe it was just he was bored with the conversation. Maybe it was just like he couldn't help but say it. He had to bring it up. I don't know. My imagination goes toward maybe they're thinking about Moses' family and how they hid him and didn't give him up. And Jesus was like, you know what? That's not as easy as you think it is. One of you are going to betray me. And then the disciples start to have a debate. If you notice, the next section in your text is they start to talk about who is the greatest. And this is a very conceivable argument that they're having. You probably have had an experience like this in your life. When somebody knows that something is wrong in a room of people, but they don't know who has done it. Too many examples just popped into my mind. Uh, let's just say... Uh, if, if you're in a board meeting and somebody, your boss comes in and says, I know one of you has been embezzling or has been stealing money. And what happens next is very important because if you stare at somebody for more than two seconds, they're going to start to think you think it's them. This happens to me all the time. We look at you <laughs> and they'll say, Dan. And then the response is always the same. What? Don't look at me. Right? Don't look at me. What? Transpose that same uh, paradigm onto the disciples. One of you is going to betray me. Thomas? What? Don't look at me. I forget the bread one time, and you think I'm the worst disciple. You know? <laughs> well, look at Peter. You know, Peter, I, oh yeah, you went up the mountain one time and claimed to see Moses and Elijah. All of a sudden, you're the greatest disciple. You're not the greatest disciple. You're like the greatest token fisherman disciple. Maybe in your own class you're great. I'm greater than you. It's a very inviting argument because I think that even as I read this, ironically, I start to say to myself, what are these guys even talking about? Clearly, I would be a much greater candidate for the greatest disciple. I'm way greater. than I might even be the greatest disciple that Jesus has ever seen. When it's something that the disciples keep coming uh, around to periodically through the stories of the gospel, usually, for me, it's a bullseye for something that I also struggle with as well. This is something that they've been talking about periodically throughout their journey with Jesus. Who's the greatest? And not for nothing here in the West is the greatest and the number one something that we find very, very uh, tempting and important. I mean, from birth, we're told that number one is a great thing. I mean, recently I saw an ad for Baby Olympics. <laughs> Why? <laughs> These babies can crawl for a five-meter, like, dash. And it's, it sounds kind of cute, but the picture that they showed was of one baby just sort of not knowing what it was doing, crossing the finish line, and another baby whose hand was about to be there and just crying, like just shattered. Like, I've been working my whole life for this. My life is over. It's not a, a, a small thing. The best grades get the best scholarship. The best sales gets the best office. The bonus, the promotion, the best record in sports gets the trophy, the fame, the glory. The best is what we want to be. We even compete over things that don't matter because we are so obsessed with being number one. 
best dress, best Instagram, most likes. I'm the greatest person. Of course, Christians are above this. I, we turn Christianity into one big competition. I mean, there's small ways and large ways of doing this, but I mean, as a kid, I still remember the sword drill competition of 1995. I am the champ to this day in my hometown. Why is that? It's not even a, it's just who can open the Bible the fastest. You're number one at being able to find the verses, Dan. You get candy if, you're, uh, if you've witnessed to somebody or shared your faith. Good job, Dan. You're number one at being an evangelist. C- keep it coming. We start to compete with each other and, and start to maybe even judge other people and put them a little behind us and get just a little bit more radical as, uh, and start to judge people, put ourselves a little bit farther down uh, the field when it comes to our stance with God. A competition isn't a bad thing. It's not an evil thing. But what lies behind this lifestyle is a belief that is dangerous. That if I do better, God will love me better. If I do more, God will love me more. If I'm number one I'm to God, obviously I am in better position to be blessed than other people. And it sets us up for failure when trials come. And that's exactly what Jesus is stepping into. You guys think that this isn't going to be a very difficult time if you decide that you're the greatest? He steps into this in verse 25. He starts to show that this is the way of thinking that the world uh, thinks. You're welcome to live that way. You're welcome to usurp authority and start to uh, figure out who's the most powerful. But that doesn't lead anywhere. I want you to follow me. I want you to eat at the table with me. I want you to rule next to me. But it's not going to be based on whether or not you're the greatest. Jesus says, let he who is the greatest among you become the least. This is how it works. It's how it works for us. The world doesn't need another champ. Another Samson. The world doesn't need another American Idol or a Christian version of American Idol. The world needs Jesus and a life-giving Jesus. The world needs people to say, I'm going to serve. I'm going to be humble and lay down my life for my my family and my city. And I'm not going to put myself first. I'm not even going to try and be first. It's almost like someone should have said... If you want to get life in this, in this life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you're going to find it. Say, Dan, Mike, how do I do this? Well, a good place to start is to serve when you don't have to. The greatest becoming the least is, is, a, is a point when you decide, I don't have to do this, I'm going to do this. I wanted I want to give this and I'm not trying to put my name on it. I'm not trying to get paid for this. I'm not trying to get kickback. There's nothing in this for me. I'm just here for the betterment of mankind. I'm just here to help out. Jesus said the son of man did not come to be served at all, but to serve and give himself up as a ransom for many. We got to follow him. You with me? Next thing Jesus steps into is an is a understanding of times to come. He, uh, he starts to talk to Peter. 
And Peter has a misunderstanding of what's about to happen. I mean, he, he says, Peter, don't you know, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you guys like wheat. Peter's like, no, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to just, I'm going to fight for you until I go to jail or until I die. Jesus is trying to set him up for, for success in hard times. The picture that I get for, for the sifting is a sieve, you know, like a round one that's separating the chaff from the grain. And it's used to shake. You know, you shake it. Uh, wire, metal wire with me- making a mesh, you know, that, that stuff gets through and stuff doesn't get through. Okay, so Satan has a sieve. It's not one that is used for wheat, though. It's used for, for us. And it's wanting to, to separate us from our faith. That's what's at stake. Satan wants to sift everybody from uh, their faith and separate. He was shaking up your life, shaking up your marriage, shaking up your family. Are you ready? Do you have what, you, what, what, are you prepared for the trials that are in front of you? Or do we have a belief that as soon as I uh, start following Jesus, I'm not going to get shaken, nothing's just shaking about my life. This is how we are to interpret the following phrases here. When Jesus says, remember back in the day when I sent you out and you didn't need a money bag, you didn't need shoes, people generally accepted you and were hospitable and it was cool. That's not what's going to happen. Don't expect that. You need to get a bag of money, you need to get a cloak, you need to get a sword. Everything a a person who's traveling through uh, this world needs. You need to be ready for this journey that we're going to take with Jesus. It's not going to be easy. What are you missing on your packing list? You know, do you need to pack a a sword, a money bag, or a cloak? Or is it for you? Um, You know that you need a mentor. You know that's something that you're lacking. and And it's a huge blind spot on your journey with Jesus. Would you refuse to... To seek one out. I encourage you to get ready. Faith is at stake here. There's something that you uh, believe or, or don't believe about God. And there's some uh, uh, concept or something that you are really struggling with believing or not. And, and God is just uh, at a distance for you because of it. But you refuse to really wrestle with it. And, be, and get right with God. Don't let that be the theme for this year for you. I don't know what it is for you guys. It's probably different for everyone. We're all on different places in our journey with Jesus. But we all can start the same place that Jesus starts. I have prayed for you. When's the last time that you prayed? What am I going to pray for? Well, he prays for strength for Peter. And then he invites him into the garden and says, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. In other words, pray for wisdom. Pray for strength and pray for wisdom. See, Jesus invites us into the garden, guys. He invites us to come with him into the hard places, into the darkness. And he wants us to pray alongside of him. That struggle is not a sign of a lack of faith. He wants us to come with him. Are you going to be asleep? When the, sh- when the sifting comes, are you going to be asleep when you're needed to pray and to be there? Or are you going to be ready? 
Pray for strength and for wisdom for your family. Pray for strength and for wisdom for your marriages. Pray for strength and wisdom for your your, uh, workplace and the people that you know so that when the shaking comes, we'll be able to stand with Christ. I don't want you to have flimsy backbones. I want, I want to see strength in your back like metal, spines. I want to see you stand. And we stand with strength by praying. While Jesus was still talking to them about this, a crowd comes up. And Judas is leading the crowd. Why did Judas betray Jesus? What is going on here? And why did he kiss him? I've got some ideas about this. Okay, the, the, the traditional, simple understanding is that Judas was just really greedy. And he wanted the extra money. That's definitely a factor in play. There's definitely something there. He's, he's, he's uh, according to our text, been influenced by Satan. And so maybe this was a foothold and something that he's really struggling with. But I think maybe it could be a little more complicated than that. See, Jesus is one of the twelve. This is twice in our text. He's one of the twelve. What does that mean? He's one of the twelve disciples. He's been with Jesus for three years. He's been there when Jesus was casting out demons and healing people, engaging with the demoniac. He was there when all kinds of healings were happening. He he was right there with Jesus doing ministry for the last three years. He knows what Jesus is capable of. He knows that people are thinking that he's the Messiah that's going to lead this country to liberty. He saw all these people chanting for Jesus on Palm Sunday. And he's also a zealot and a Judean, which has some major political uh, implications. And then he also heard Jesus just yesterday say, you know, this Jerusalem temple thing is all going to be destroyed. You'd be be better off taking off. This whole thing's coming down. And that does not jive well with what Judas is planning on doing. I wonder if Judas is trying to kick off the the revolution. This isn't my idea. This is a a belief by the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is like one-third of Christianity. And so, I, I don't know. I find it very interesting that Judas might be actually trying to kick off the insurrection. Maybe that's what the kiss means. Maybe the kiss is a nod to Psalm 2. The most warrior Messiah Psalms that there are. See, I've placed my anointed one on Zion. Right where Jesus was. See, he, he will rule this... Um, He will rule the nations with the iron scepter, and he will smash them like clay pottery. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry with you. What if Judas is kissing him and saying, the means are justifying the end? I'm going to force the hand of Jesus here. The other disciples definitely caught that. Should we strike with the sword? (laughs) At this point, Some people start to go down a road and say, well, what's so bad about Judas in this life? I mean, why would you get in trouble for believing that Jesus was the Messiah? Nobody got in trouble on Palm Sunday. Well, that's where I draw the line. 
There's a big difference between somebody who believes that Jesus is going to be something for them and they're out of order and somebody who says, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to, I'm going to just, when push comes to shove, do what I feel like I need to do. We live in a dark time, you guys, and we need to decide right now, am I going to be a disciple of Jesus or am I going to be a disciple of Judas? Am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to follow myself? Am I going to, am I going to, when, when I feel like I need to do something and it's opposite of what I see God doing and I know he wants me to do something else, am I going to go the other way and say, uh, I got a better idea. That's the action of somebody who's following the pattern of Judas. Following Jesus means I'm going to obey you and trust you regardless of what I'm feeling right now. I'm going to walk with you into the darkness if it, if, if it makes sense or if it doesn't make sense. I'm going to follow you. So choose you this day whom you will serve. Judas uses Jesus for his own agenda. Either way. I'm going to end with this thought of rewinding the tape back to dinner. And I'll ask the band, if there is a band, to come and get all ready. We rewind the tape back to dinner, where Jesus is sitting here with Judas, with Peter, with everybody that is going to abandon him and betray him. Knowing the temptations and the dangers that are all real, knowing that full well the struggles that they're going to participate or, or have, he doesn't give them a concept. He doesn't throw a Bible verse at them. He doesn't say, here's what you should think about. Jesus breaks a piece of bread and hands it to them. And I love this because I feel things, like real feelings— and I don't need just an idea. I need something real. And he says, eat this. This is as real as it gets. Eat this bread and remember how real that I am for you. Drink this wine and remember how real this is. You don't have to try and be the greatest. You don't have to prove yourself to God. You don't have to try and be number one for him to love you. I will be your champion. Just take my bread and take my wine and receive me where I am and I'll receive you exactly where you are. For those of us who are struggling with that performance, receive Jesus and receive his perfect life. Receive the champion. For those of us who are struggling with being in a shaking time of life and we've been sleeping or we've been not engaging or we've been not trying anymore. Receive Jesus who says, this bread is my body that was broken for you. You think you're in pain? I know pain. I know suffering and I have sympathy for you and I'll meet you there. You need to receive my brokenness as a, as a, as a payment for your sin and for all the times that you fell asleep. We didn't do communion stuff out here today because I want to challenge you guys to, today at lunch or at dinner to, to give it to each other and to give it to each other again and again and again as often as, as it takes for you to take it seriously 
We're in a dark time, and we need uh, the light in our, own in our own lives at our dinner table. We need to look each other in the eye and say, here, this is Jesus, who he will be for you. Re if you receive him, take this and eat it. If you need him, take this and eat it. For every time that we stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus in the garden and say, not your will, but mine. He hands us communion and says, no, take this and eat it. For every time you say that, I said, not my will, but yours be done. This is the gospel.